0: Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for this community of faith. And Lord, one of the great things about community is the interwoven relationships that we have, the friendships that you have given us. And Father, as I talk about a, a topic of frayed relationships, um, perhaps there'll be some past hurts that will be kind of, you know, reminded in the hearts of these dear brothers and sisters and I pray that this will just give them some holy perspective on what it means to have um, a Christ-centered relationship and how to respond if you don't. Holy Spirit, help me to be clear. I pray that I'll be faithful to the spirit of the text and to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the year was 1944, and Private Eddie Slovic was en route to the front lines when his unit came under enemy fire. He became separated from his unit and for six weeks dwelt in a small French hamlet that was occupied by the Canadian military police. His companion and fellow American who was separated from the unit, began to clear up some of the confusion with the Canadian uh, military police and they were transferred back to their American unit on the front line. And the day before he was gonna be dispatched, he was a rifleman, he he told his commanding officer that if you put me on the front lines, I will run away. When I'm under fire, I get nervous, terrified, I, I become too scared. Uh, To move. Well, his commanding officer understandably denied his request, commissioned him to go to the front line, and on that day, Private Eddie Slovic, despite the pleadings of his friends, decided that his mind was made up, and he went to the back of the line, and he gave a confession to a cook, which was then given to a commanding officer, in which he told them that he intentionally left the unit when they came under fire, because When there's gunshots and firings, he he becomes paralyzed. He can't move. He was too scared. And so he was officially deserting the army. He told them, quote, I'll run away again if I have to go out there. Despite giving the chance to disavow that statement, he stood by it. And this created a real issue for the high command of the American military. Uh, at that point, they were about to go into a battle which would cost many American lives, and, and there was a growing number of American troops who decided that they'd rather be court-martialed than go into combat. On top of that, the German counteroffensive, known as the Battle of the Bulge took place, and so there was a real fear and dread in the army, and the morale was dropping as more and more people decided that they were not going to fight, and they'd rather be dishonorably discharged than face the consequences of going rifle-to-rifle rifle with the Germans. And so, on January 31st, 1945, they decided that Eddie Slovak would be executed by firing squad. He was the first and only American in World War II who was executed for the crime of desertion. And you can understand why. I mean, desertion has an impact on the rest of the people in your unit. They feel betrayed, they feel like they don't matter, and they feel unprotected and vulnerable. Paul would understandably feel this way as we read in 2 Timothy 4.16, that at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now we find Paul in a Roman prison, and there's a reason for this. In AD 64, a fire started at the Capena Gate uh, in Rome that burned half the city of Rome. It was a colossal disaster, and Nero was regarded as the culprit. It was rumored that this was part of his design to clear land for some ambitious building projects. Uh, Some people speculated that he was singing as Rome was burning, and this created a, a, a political crisis for him. And so to reestablish his reign, he decided to find a scapegoat. And there was a small sect of a tightly-knit community that worshipped a Palestinian peasant. They were regarded as basically atheists, as they denied the Roman gods. They were accused of having all-around hatred of mankind. Therefore, these Christians were arrested, persecuted, and executed. And Paul, their ringleader, when they were given a chance, would meet the same fate. And so Paul because he was a Roman citizen, was given the privilege of Roman justice. And so he had his first defense. This was called the the first action. It would be like a a grand jury trial where they would deliberate whether or not there's enough evidence to go ahead and go on with a full trial. Uh, This would be an opportunity for Paul to establish his innocence, to make it clear that he is not crazy, to perhaps broadcast his position. And when he went to trial, there, there might have been some expectations, right? This was the trial of his life. This was a chance to stand up for Christianity, to stand up for Jesus. And the presence of other Christians there would show the court that he's not just speaking for himself. I remember at my old church, we had a building project, and this was in deep blue Burbank, California. And we encountered an interesting problem. We didn't have enough parking spaces for our building as it was. We had to get a variance, and we are going to add more square footage to our building with this building project. So we had to get 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 special permission from the city. And do you know what we did? We let everybody know when we would appear before the city, and the entire church packed out the conference room in City Hall. There were people overflowing in the foyer. And when they were voting on it, you, you kind of got the sense that the people in the room wanted to be the good guy. And I remember the guy casting the last vote and deciding it. He, he was smiling because he knew what would happen in that we erupted in applause. I mean, it was a great moment, right? You look at, if you were on a trial yourself and, and you were possibly facing a death sentence, you'd want friends to be there, to look you in the eye, to say, yeah, it's going to be okay. We're here with you. You're not crazy, Paul. To perhaps grant him some sort of legitimacy that he's, that he's not speaking on himself. This is a bigger movement than you realize. And yet we read, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now we know that Some were dispatched, like Tychicus and Crescens and Titus. Luke probably wasn't there yet. But there was a contingent of Roman Christians who went into hiding and left Paul out to dry. They deserted him. Now, last week I I talked about Christ-centered friendships, and I discovered that I picked a few scabs. Um, When you talk about Christ-centered friendships and the joy of it, Uh, sometimes it causes people to remember the Christ-centered friendship they once had, as Nate brought up in the community meditation. Uh, And and sometimes there's some some pain when you feel deserted by those Christ-centered friendships, which you thought was one. Perhaps you lost someone close to you. It was your hour of need, and that friend who you leaned on Seem to back back away. You experience a relational breakup. And as often happens with breakups, your group of friends that you had as a couple choose sides. And they didn't choose your side. You have a working relationship with a friend. You work side by side, you thought you were close. They get promoted, and then, when there's cuts at work, you lose your job, and you find out that they're the ones who made that call. Your childhood friends, that this friend got popular in high school, and acts like they don't know you during the passing period. Or you were convinced that you were going to be best friends for life with this individual, But when they leave Emporia, well, it's clear that that friendship wasn't that important to them. I mean, and there's many of these instances, right? Where when we feel deserted by our friends, we can kind of want to retaliate in some ungodly ways, right? When you feel betrayed, when you feel deserted, you rehearse the speech do you guys know what I'm talking about with the, the speech? It begins with this. After all I've done for you, then you list all that you have done for them. You did this to me. And then you list what they did to you. And in your mind, you are picturing them on their knees, groveling, weeping, begging for forgiveness. And then you say, I'll think about it. Because you want them to hurt as much as they have hurt you. So you rehearse the speech. But you never get a chance to get the speech because they really don't care. They're not looking to reconcile that relationship. When they deserted you, they actually meant it. Or perhaps they're going on like everything's fine. No big deal here. And you're wounded, you feel betrayed. What do you do? Anybody been there? Don't raise your hand. It would create awkwardness in this room. What do you do? Do you decide that I'm never going to trust anybody again? I'm tired of the church. I want to live all by myself. I'm a rock. I'm an island. You're bitter at God because you feel like God took something away from you that was very special. Do you execute the friendship, right? That's the worldly penalty for desertion, Execution. You're dead to me. Well, let's look at how Paul responded. Look at verse 16, second half. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You look at Paul, Paul was deserted, right? He was deserted by John Mark, and we see previously what happens. Bring him to me, for he's useful to me. He was deserted by the Roman Christians, and as we see, he maintains a relationship with them. You see, Paul had a deep conviction in the power of the gospel, and when you look at the central message of the gospel, right, it's, it's about sinful man being reconciled to God through the sacrifice and service of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are the most reconciled people on the planet. Therefore, we should be the most reconciling people on the planet. When you understand the gospel, it allows you to have a relationship where you can look past sins and shortcomings and see the good even if the other person does not respond in kind. And so one of the greatest threats to spiritual desertion is that you will be tempted to desert God. Desert Jesus, desert his church, desert his body. And so how do you deal with desertion? From this passage, we're going to get four four general commands. One, you give grace. Give grace. Two, you see the good. Three, I'm sorry, go to God. See the good, and then seek glory, right? This side of heaven, there's no perfect friendships. You can be Christ-centered in your friendships, but the payoff is going to be in eternity. All of us will fail in some way, and you will be failed in certain ways as well. And so how do you deal with desertion? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to give grace, okay? When you're having that, when you're rehearsing that speech, that after all I've done for you speech, your instinct needs to be to give grace. Look at verse 16. May it not be charged against them. May it not be charged against them. That word charge means to reckon. It's kind of a financial transactional term. It's to credit as an asset to somebody's account. It's used famously in Romans 4.3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or charged or reckoned to him as righteousness. God gave full credit to Abraham on account of his faith. And so when we look at what Paul is saying here is do not charge this heinous desertion against them. Don't call it into their account. It echoes what Stephen said. Remember Stephen? Stephen? Stephen was the first martyr we see in Acts. He testified about the greatness of Jesus Christ. He made it very clear that the people he was standing in front of, those in Jerusalem, put their Messiah to death. They all got enraged. And remember, they gave their coats to Paul. Paul watched this man be falsely accused, maligned, and they are pelting him with stones. And before he dies, what does he say? And I'm sure this was lodged in Paul's mind. He probably thought of it as he wrote this. Acts 760. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's a man who understands reconciliation and grace. Do not hold this sin against them. Paul says, do not Charge this against them. May it not be charged against them. Sure, these Roman Christians abandoned him. But as we keep reading the letter, look at 421. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Clearly, he made up with the Roman Christians. He meant it. His relationship with Mark and the reconciliation they experienced in spite of that desertion shows that he was a reconciling man. He applied the truth of Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. He gave him grace. Now this is something that sounds really good in theory, doesn't it? Oh, I saw this movie about forgiveness. I read The Hiding Place with Corey Ten Boom and that one scene when she forgives the prison guard. Oh, man, that's so beautiful. Right? It's beautiful. We appreciate it when we see it in other people. But it's much harder to do it yourself, isn't it? Be honest. Much harder to do it yourself. And so to kind of help you in this, I've got three... Three words of wisdom here. Number one, remember that you have failed others. You have failed others. Now, I've been the teaching pastor here for about 14 years. And one of my sorrows is that many of you could say, he did not show up for me when I needed him most. When I tried to talk to him about this pressing issue, he seemed distracted, like he was looking for somebody else besides me. He didn't make it to that funeral, wedding, anniversary, graduation, right? You I mean I don't want to like know your grievances, but I know they're out there. <laughs> right? You know, I have failed you in some way. And that's very humbling for me. And so my my advice would be before you sulk and rehearse the shortcomings of other people, think about some of your shortcomings. Have you ever failed anyone? It could be you let down your spouse, your parents, friends, your pastor. I'll just throw that in there, I'm trying to get it both ways, right? Do you know I'm saying? But that's just the truth. There's no perfect people here. We have all let people down, and and if you think you know, I can't really think of a time I failed someone. That's when you remember the second word of wisdom. Remember that in many cases, they don't know they are failing you. They don't know that they're failing you. One Christian thinker writes in a correspondence about this issue. He says this, I think what one has to remember when people hurt one is that in 99 out of 100, they intend to hurt very much less or not at all and are often quite unconscious of the whole thing. I've learned this from the cases in which I was the herder. When I have been really wicked and angry and meant to be nasty, the other party never cared or even didn't even notice. On the other hand, when I found out afterwards that I deeply hurt someone, it has nearly always been quite unconscious on my part. Isn't that true? There are times when I hurt people deeply, I didn't even realize it. Then there's other times when I thought I hurt people deeply, and apparently I didn't. Sometimes you just don't know. I mean, sometimes that person who you consider to be a close and intimate friend has about 12 other people in their life that would also consider them a close, dear, intimate, personal friend. And the reason why is they're ministry-oriented, they're compassionate, they're kind, they make time for other people. They just don't have that exclusive relationship with you that you have with them. And so when they don't return your phone call right away or they don't participate in your home business or they don't show up at that party you invited them to, there can be a deeper level of betrayal when they didn't even realize it. And so that's why it's helpful to make charitable judgments about this person. If somebody's talking to you and they just seem distracted, well, maybe they are distracted. Maybe they're not feeling well. Maybe they have some sickness that has done something to them where their thoughts just aren't there. Maybe they're kind of losing their edge as they're getting older. It could be that there's just some deep family crisis that's going on and is all they can do is just to be present at church and not necessarily pay attention to what you're going through. All right, There could be lots of reasons for it. We don't know. That's why you make charitable judgments. You assume the best, not the worst. 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7 Love is patient and kind. Love, is not, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then thirdly, remember that they're human. In the case of Paul, he probably remembered that he was on trial and he was threatened with potential execution. Nero was burning Christians in garden parties. And so you can understand why somebody lost their nerve and decided that they didn't want to come out of the closet as a Christian when that could be a death sentence for them. Sometimes fear brings out the worst in us. We feel ashamed about it afterwards. It is what it is. They're only human. And you probably have done the same. So you give them grace. You give them grace. Secondly, when somebody deserts you, not only give them grace, you go to God. You go to God. Look at the contrast in verse 17. They deserted him but the Lord stood by me and strengthened him. We didn't sing this today, but one of the great hymns is what a friend we have in Jesus, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. And so often it's easy to think that I don't need Jesus as my friend. I need my friends as friends. But the reason why God has given us spiritual friendships is to drive us to Jesus, right? That is the means to the end of, of following the Lord and going to Jesus. And, and it can be a temptation in many of our lives to think that what I really need is a friend. If I had a friend, then I would find comfort and encouragement and I can walk with Jesus. And Jesus is just saying, what am I, Chop liver? And so why did paul want friends he wanted friends so that they got encouragement he wanted friends so that he would be strengthened so that he can testify fully of the gospel and you know what in their absence jesus stepped in he strengthened him he helped him to honor him in the midst of that trial now it's real easy For us to think, okay, I know Jesus came and walked on the earth, and I know that he's with us always to the ends of the age. I know that, but there's no way that he can relate to what I'm going through. I mean, he's Jesus. Now, we don't say that out loud because we don't want people to think I'm a heretic, right? We just think of it inside. There's no way. I mean, I know he's a friend, but come on. He's invisible. He's out there. I feel all alone. And this is where we remember that the reason why Jesus is such a great friend is he knows exactly what you're going through. Really? Yes. How do you know? This is where the doctrine of the priesthood of Jesus is just so compelling. You know what a priest does. We don't have, we're a kingdom of priests, right? We don't have priests anymore because we have a high priest in heaven. We don't have earthly priests, so to speak. But what a priest does is a priest represents God to the people. He brings the concerns of God to the people. And then he brings the concerns of the people to God. He's an intermediary. And so with Jesus, he's a perfect high priest because he understands God. He was with God from the beginning. He is God. Right? So we have no problem understanding that part of his priesthood. He makes that very clear. But the other part of the priesthood is he completely understands the human experience. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has been tempted. He was tempted to be bitter At betrayal. I think about the night before Jesus died, he's praying for strength and vigor. He was not only deserted by his disciples, he was betrayed by a disciple. And I I will just tell you, if you're to look on degrees of sin, what hurts worse? Desertion or betrayal? Betrayal. Betrayal. And as he's preparing his soul, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens according to Matthew 26, 47? Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So here is Judas leading the brute squad. And, and Matthew brings up that he's one of the twelve. One of the twelve disciples who served with Jesus, who ministered alongside of Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who dined with Jesus. One of the twelve. Oh. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now notice he calls him Rabbi, Master. That was a very high human title that he gave him. And... He kissed him. And in those days, kisses were for friends. It was intimate. If, if you were to read this story for the first time to somebody in that culture, they'd go, oh no, oh, wow. They'd feel the weight of that moment. And then Jesus responds by saying, friend, friend. This is the et tu, Brute, moment. If you're familiar with Julius Caesar, as he's being knifed by the Roman Senate, and he looks around and sees Brutus, his trusted friend, coming at him with a knife, he says, et tu, Brute. This is the moment where he says, friend. Only he wasn't surprised, he knew it, and he loved him anyway. Do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. You think Jesus understands betrayal? Of course he does and frankly betrayal of all the human experiences is probably the worst John MacArthur was asked what's been the greatest pain you've endured in ministry and he's endured a lot um, his wife nearly died in a car accident he had a son with brain cancer but this is what he said he said it's the pain of betrayal by friends Because what that does is it alters the way you see that past relationship. He was not who I thought he was. She was not who I thought she was. It was all a lie. And all the good times that we had were met with this unhappy ending, right? Betrayal is is deep. So why did I bring that up? Jesus experienced the worst of betrayal. And so when you feel deserted, The solution is you go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. He understands. He will comfort and he will strengthen you and he will never betray you. In fact, you know, sometimes we can place too much faith and confidence in our friends. And when something like this happens, it's really God's way of of reminding you that Jesus really is more than enough. You see, you not only go to God, you, you see the good. That perhaps this is part of a larger story where God is going to do something good and beautiful with this desertion. Verse 17, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Right, so there's two positives. Number one, he was able with the assistance and the strength of Jesus, the Lord, to freely proclaim the gospel, you see, these initial trials were often an opportunity for the, um, you know, for the accused to present their positions independent of defending their innocence. This was really a, a fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken about Jesus, or spoken about. I'm sorry, Paul to uh, Ananias where where we read in Acts 9.15 that Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So once again, he finds himself on trial for his life in front of the important people of the Roman magistrate and he testifies about the gospel. And he does that in the epicenter of Rome. He goes to the lion's den the heart of Mordor and he preaches gospel truth God gave him courage God gave him conviction well I mean see he, he was also rescued from the lion's mouth now there's all kinds of theories about this whether or not this is a, a reference to Nero as a lion Satan as a lion <laughs> reference to Daniel in the lion's den But what we can take away is that he was preserved from immediate execution and death. He was delivered. God was faithful. You see, through this, he saw that that Christ was enough for him. Sometimes, when we really lean in on people, you lean in on the community, you believe that Christ plus my friend is enough. But Paul learned that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That work of desertion was used to help him to have a greater and more glorious vision of the Lord. And it probably played a role in their lives as well. Paul was able to apply Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So don't allow desertion to harden you. See the good. And then you seek glory. Seek glory. After rehearsing the Lord's faithfulness to him, what does he say? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He immediately looks towards eternal glory, doesn't he? Now he knows he's going to die. He's made it very clear in 4.6, right? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering for the time of my departure has come. The ship is in port, is about to sail. The end is near. But he knows that the Lord preserved his faith and he saw many people fall away, didn't he? He saw Demas fall away. Alexander fall away, but the Lord is preserving and protecting him and he will arrive safely in the heavenly kingdom. See, Paul understood that the purpose of these Christ-centered friendships was to strengthen and to encourage, right? To stimulate one another to love and good deeds, preparing for the day that is drawing near that Through all of these means, God has prepared him for that. And he's looking forward to glory, looking forward to the day when he will see his Savior face to face in the company of the redeemed, where he will be a Christ-centered friend, enjoying Christ-centered friendships for all eternity. And this causes him to just give a little doxology of praise to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the point of the Christian life is not to have friends. The point of Christian friendships is not to enjoy the friendship, but to enjoy Christ. Having great friendships is wonderful, but they are a means to an end. And you have to make sure that you don't put your hope in the means rather than the ends. If you're devastated at this desertion, If it causes you to fall away from Christ and his people, then the means has become the end. Does that make sense? Paul's purpose for friendship and his whole life was to give God glory. And that actually made him a better friend. Years ago, there was a friend of mine who was dispatched to the hospital and had to stay there for a very, very long time and... I'd visit him intermittently, not as much as I would like. But I remember every time I would visit him, he would just say, God is so good. He is so faithful. He is so good. And that had multiple impacts on me. Number one, I was deeply encouraged to see him as faithful as my friend celebrated the faithfulness and goodness of God in an unreal circumstance. And secondly, I never got the sense that I was going to disappoint him because his hope was not in me. His comfort was not in me. His hope was in Christ. You see, when you seek glory and your hope is really in Christ, it makes you a better friend because you are undisappointable. Now that's not to say that there's not a place for a lament when you feel pain and betrayal. That's not to say that you shouldn't take steps to try to repair a relationship that's broken. But you don't do it because you want them to make things right with you, but you want them to make things right with the Lord. So instead of being bitter, angry, and wanting to pull out the firing squad, when you feel desertion, you give them grace, you go to God, you see the good, and you seek glory. Now, I want to be clear here. This doesn't necessarily mean that you just keep a stiff upper lip, and that's it. I move on. Sometimes when there is desertion, the other person may not know it you may have to address the elephant in the room and make overtures towards real reconciliation. One of the great mistakes people can make is they just kind of let this little root of bitterness just grow and don't even address it in the unsuspecting friend. Remember, a lot of times people don't know that they hurt you or abandoned you. So it's worth talking to them, but you do so with a heart for reconciliation. One example of this is Job. You guys know about Job? Job was a righteous man who was a topic of discussion between Satan and the Lord. And Satan made it very clear that the reason why Job is walking with the Lord is because of the unusual amount of favor that the Lord has placed upon him. You pull back the favor, you pull back the blessing, you take away his wealth and and his family and his health, he will drop you like a rotten sack of potatoes. And so, to prove a point, the Lord says, go ahead, and Satan does his worst. And for a week, remember the friends sat with him to comfort him. Job rejoiced in their presence, and then they spoke. And he lamented in their presence and what they were doing is basically saying job you must have done something pretty bad what is it because you can understand that right when you see somebody suffering they're going through cancer or something like that you want to comfort them but you're also thinking how can i make sure i don't get that must be their diet You know, the reason why they got that is because they did this activity. They don't exercise enough. And if I can control this variable, I'll be okay. Well, what they were thinking is he must have sinned against God in in some way. God must have done it. And if I can avoid it, then I will escape that kind of judgment and wrath. And so they weren't comforting Job with these accusations. They were comforting themselves with these accusations. And Job maintains his innocence. He says, I'm not perfect, but I have not sinned like you're accusing me of. He waits for the Lord to answer, and the Lord answers him in a whirlwind, puts him in his place. That must have been a very intense 15 minutes for Job. Can you imagine? Okay, I get it. No, you don't, Job. And then he goes on again. And at the very end, in Job 42, 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Then he tells him to take seven bulls and seven rams to Job and have him offer them up as a sacrifice, and then Job is to pray for them, which he did. Job was willing to forgive repentant friends. Now, the Lord may not tell your friends to go to you and repent. Sometimes you have to tell them. Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Sometimes you need to talk to them. Now, I want to give you a qualifier, okay? Feeling hurt may not be proof of their sin. Feeling hurt may not be proof of their sin. might be proof of your sin. Someone really deserted you, really deserted you, then you bring it to their attention. And the goal is not to make them feel bad. Is not to make them hurt. That's not reconciliation, right? That's basically tit for tat. You hurt me, I hurt you. That's not the goal. The goal is to absorb the hurt because you want to reconcile the relationship. You want to give them a chance to extend grace. I remember as a young Christian, my first summer back, I converted in the winter of my freshman year. I underwent a very large transformation and I spent my first summer at home in the company of all my friends who knew the old Dave. And I was a very different person. They described me as a Bible thumper from hell. Like I'm a Bible thumper, but not from hell, you know. (laughs) And there was this growing tension in our friendships where I would not partake of what I used to partake in and do the things I used to do or talk about what I used to talk about. And, and I had friends who were atheists at the time who um, were really troubled by it, didn't like what my faith was doing to me. And I will confess, I was young, fanatical, belligerent. I mean, I was ready to save the world. But not all my friends were that way. I had some Christian friends, including one who invited me to the Christian ministry at KU that was instrumental in my salvation. And we were still friends in in college, and we were still growing. Well, there was one night we all got together for a movie night, and one of my friends decided that we needed to watch Menace to Society. Not sure if you've ever seen that movie, don't recommend it. But it's one of those ghetto tragedies, right, that shows the hopeless life of the ghetto. you have the main character who finds some way to get out of the ghetto at last. And the day before he leaves, he dies in a drive-by shooting. Not a good party movie, by the way. It was like, oh, that stinks. And I remember my friend, he got up afterwards, he recommended the movie and says, this movie shows that we need to address the issues in the inner city. We need more education, we need more funding, we need business development, he kind of went through, I was on the debate team with him, so he had this whole like three-point debate platform that we needed to do, and I just said, hey, listen, those people don't need more education, they need Jesus Christ, and that just changed the temperature of the room. It's like, all right, now we're getting into it, right? Right? And my friends were ready for their Dave Hintz Christian intervention, And I remember um, my Christian friends stood up and walked out of the room. And it was just like, what? And the one who went to KU with me approached me a couple weeks later, and she was in tears, and she just said, I've been going over that night over and over again, and I am so ashamed. I'm just so ashamed. And it was something that the Lord used to realize that she just... She believed the gospel, but not really. And, and I had my sin, too, being judgmental, self-righteous. I was kind of in my cage stage, to, so to speak. But you know what? It was something where, of course, I would forgive her because that is the whole point of the Christian life. When you think about it, all of us are deserters. We have all deserted God we have all turned our back on God and justice for a deserter is to turn your back on them the God in his kindness sent his son he was perfectly faithful never deserted God and when he went to the cross what did he utter my God my God why have you forsaken me Because we turned our back on God, God turned his back on Christ so that he could pay that full payment, so that Christ could be our substitute, so that Christ would receive the execution for desertion instead of us. And now we can follow the risen Savior. We have been forgiven of divine desertion And so what do you do when somebody deserts you in your hour of need? That's where you go to the gospel. God will give you the strength to desert them, and in their absence, the Lord himself will be with you in your darkest hour. Christ will never desert you. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for this word, And just a reminder that, Christ, you really are enough. And Lord, while we love our friends, while we want to be good friends, we fall short in so many ways. And I just pray that there'll be a culture of grace that when desertion does happen, we won't charge it against others. That we will see the good that you can do and even understand that you are more than enough. And I pray for anyone who you might be experiencing some pain right now, that they will go to you and that you might use these words, use scriptures, perhaps use the words of other friends to minister to their hurts. and that all the desertion we experience will ultimately drive us to you. In Christ's name, amen.